Welcome to the latest edition of Star Cells, and God. This is the podcast where we explore the discoveries that are happening at the frontiers of science and look at what those discoveries mean for the Christian faith. Look at how these discoveries provide us with new evidence for God's existence and the reliability of the Old and the New Testaments. This podcast is sponsored by Reasons to Believe. If you want to know more about the organization that sponsors this podcast, please go to our website, www.reasons.org, or you can follow us on social media, rtb underscore official. And then also visit our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe One, where you can get access to all kinds of great content laying out the relationship between science and the Christian faith. And of course, if you're there, make sure you hit the notification button so that you can be informed as to when the next episode of Star Cells in God will drop. Uh, my name is Fuzz Rana. I'm a biochemist and a Christian apologist, and I have the pleasure of being joined in studio today by Dr. David Block, a renowned astronomer. Thank and, you, Fuzz. It's lovely to be here. And yes, and, and, a, and a man of God. Yes. And so, Amen. Yeah, David is going to share with us a little bit about the James Webb Telescope yes, images and, and what this means for uh, the anthropic principle. Mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. I'm going to talk a little bit mm. at the other extreme of the universe about uh, viruses and specifically Lovely. Lovely. the function of endogenous retroviruses in the human genome. Isn't it wonderful that you can talk on the microcosm <laughs> and I can talk on the macrocosm? Yes, it, yes, it's, it's beautiful <laughs> that way, right? Yeah. All right, well, David, why don't you go ahead and start us off today? So uh, tell us a little bit about the, the James Webb Telescope and the images coming from it and, and why you're so excited as an astronomer, mm. but also as a, a Christian mm. who sees evidence for God's fingerprints and Everywhere, creation. yes. Well, of course, the beauty of the James Webb Space Telescope is that it's not an optical telescope, it's an infrared telescope. And that's terribly important because up to now, uh, telescopes such as the Hubble Space Telescope are primarily optical. And the problem there, Fuzz, is what we call shrouds of the night. Mm -hmm. The universe, galaxies, dust masses, galaxies are encased in huge amounts of cosmic dust. Now, to give your viewers an analogy, imagine you landing, say, at LAX or London Heathrow, perhaps even better, and you've got fog. Mm -hmm. You can't see anything. There's fog. There's an airport there, and you're going to land there at Heathrow, but you can't, you can't penetrate the mosque. Likewise, there are many mosques, for example, in your body and mine. Uh, my skin is a mosque. Mm -hmm. You can't see my spinal column. I can't see yours, which is very good when one is dating because you don't <laughs> want to be dating another spinal column, right? <laughs> and so the point is sometimes you need X-ray eyes. Yeah. You know, radiologists need X-ray eyes. But at other times, you've got this cosmic fog, curtains, if you like, um, between the stars and shrouding out the stars or structures of galaxies, and you need to work in the near-infrared. Now, when I visited Reasons to Believe first, in 1990, I think it was, I flew from here, Los Angeles, to Hawaii to the Mauna Kea observatories. Mm -hmm. And the, this is one of the first near-infrared cameras, large-format cameras, used. Mm -hmm. 
Apparently, they were declassified, just declassified by the U.S. military because they were used to spy on moving targets in the former Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Incredible. And so they were declassified. And I was privileged to be one of the first astronomers to use these large mm -hmm. format arrays in um, Monarchia. And I, I requested my uh, uh, collaborators to put the telescope on a galaxy. And I stunned. I was blown right out of my mind. Suddenly there was structure I'd never seen before, much like me looking at you and then suddenly I'm seeing your spinal column. There's so much structure we saw. Mm -hmm. And you know, Faz, as a biochemist yourself, you would know about nature. Right. It's the world's most reputable scientific journal. I mean, uh, Watson right. and Crick right. <laughs> cracked the DNA code and published in Nature. Well, the results of my near-infrared work and our near-infrared observations were featured on the cover of Nature, not only in Nature, mm -hmm. but on the cover of Nature. And so that was birthing my interest in infrared astronomy, near-infrared astronomy. Now, the beauty with this telescope is that it can start penetrating shrouds of the night, clouds of cosmic dust on scales we could never, mm. ever, ever have dreamt before. And I think, before I go on to elucidate some of the discoveries, that to me is the key focus of uh, James Webb is its power to to penetrate the shrouds of the night in the uh, near infrared region of the electromagnetic spectrum. So it's not just simply that the James Webb telescope is giving us better resolution. No, not at all. But, but it's actually giving us a a a new view. A new view of the universe. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. incredible. That's the whole point, is it's not just bigger, which it is, compared to Hubble and so on. It's not better only better technology, you know, these 18 hexagonal mirrors and so on opening up like petals. No, it's the fact that uh, it's the world's greatest orbiting infrared telescope. Yeah. Um, the, the only predecessor... Uh, is that uh, is worthy of mention at this time is the Spitzer Space Telescope, which also worked wondrously in the infrared, but it was so small. Okay. This one is just... And this telescope, too, is placed behind the moon, so it's beautifully dark, and it can survey the skies mm -hmm. for hours and hours on end, highest resolution but correct wavelength. Yeah, okay. Fascinating. So then... What are some of the discoveries that you think are, or the images maybe I should mm. say, in the discoveries connected yes, with them? That's a lovely question. You know, when I was schooled in galaxies and cosmology, we were taught that galaxies formed top-down, top-down structures, which means simply this. You start off with an island universe, an island galaxy, and then the galaxy starts evolving or changing mm. with time, and it may develop an elongated central feature called a bar, but they regarded galaxies as pretty isolated units. These were the world's leading astronomers at the time, including Alan Sandage, and the paradigm the leading paradigm at the time was that galaxies are closed systems, dynamically closed mm. systems. In other words, they don't really interact with anything else. You've got this island universe, this galaxy, say our Milky Way, and uh, it forms top-down. Now, the other scenario was, of course, completely discarded, and that's a bottom-up 
scenario. Now, in that scenario, one galaxy collides with another galaxy, collides with another galaxy, and it starts forming the overall appearance of the galaxy or morphology of the galaxy over eons of time. And so that was completely discarded in the textbooks. I mean, all textbooks spoke about monolithic collapse. Famous papers, um, Fuzz, which suggested that that's how galaxies actually form. So we're looking at the very heart of the formation of galaxies. And then I was the team leader uh, of an infrared study to look at the Andromeda spiral galaxy, which is on our doorstep, 2.2 million light years. And we found that there was a near-head-on collision about 250 million years ago, a near-head-on collision. And, of course, that suggested, that was an infrared study, and that suggested that galaxies are dynamically open systems, not dynamically closed systems, Mm -hmm. and that they are interacting all the time, galaxies colliding one with another and, you know, fusing Mm -hmm. together and very dynamically open systems. Mm -hmm. And that is what I saw. Mm-hmm. And see with the James Webb Space Telescope over and over again is if you look at these very distant galaxies, they definitely dynamically open. That was surprise number one. Yeah. But surprise number two is that also at redshifts of around 13 or 14, you've got galaxies which are already like parent universes. They're already well formed. Mm. This is a great mystery. We still don't understand that too well, but this is a great mystery is that these galaxies are fully formed with a giant molecular clouds of cosmic gas and dust. And of course, that, that, I love unsolved problems because it makes us think. But the other thing, the other thing, of course, it's wonderfully, wonderful, absolutely glorious uh, evidence, Fuzz, for the handiwork of God, how so. Because when you look at these images, I think of the first one, which was released by President Biden, uh, you see all those arcs, zillions of arcs. Well, not zillions, but dozens of arcs. Those are gravitational arcs lensed by galaxies. So you've got a distant uh, galaxy, for example. The light moves across a foreground cluster of galaxies, which acts as a gravitational lens. The light bends and is seen as an arc on planet Earth. And you've got dozens of those arcs in the first image, which again is wonderful evidence for Big Bang cosmology, but cosmology on the grander sense, using general relativity, Mm -hmm. understanding that the universe has a beginning, not only in cosmic space, but in cosmic time, but that general relativity is absolutely Mm -hmm. viable for the uh, understanding of Big Bang cosmology, predicting these arcs. I just wish Albert Einstein could be a fly on the wall now with these incredible images. So, so that's a so when you uh, demonstrate not only a Big Bang universe but the the reliability of general relativity yes. that that has implications in terms of time and space having a beginning. Absolutely. It's not just the matter and energy, yes, absolutely. but it's space and time, yes. right? Yes. You know, Fuzz, that's so interesting because so many people say to me, Professor David Block, what was God doing before he created the heavens and the earth? And the interesting thing, Fuzz, is that that question doesn't make any sense because 
time comes into existence at t equals zero, the Big yeah. Bang, at t equals zero. So there's no before. Yeah. If you ask me, what was I doing before I came to studio? Well, I was walking to the studio. We know that because time exists. Right. But God, when you ask the question, what was God doing before the Big Bang? There's no before because yeah. there's no time. It's just so wonderful to go into those realms yeah. of his transcendence, is it not? And also of his eminence. Well, you know, it's interesting because for us, we can't even conceive what a reality would be like if, there, if, there, if there isn't time. No. Right. And I, I think it was a John Barrow quote that I found someplace where he said something like, once upon a time, there was no time. <laughs> right. So well, you can't you mm, can't even articulate mm, really the, the concept no, of, of no, no time. No, no, no. Because, but this speaks to our finite nature. Mm, exactly. But. What I find just astounding is within Scripture is embedded this this notion that time had a beginning. Absolutely. So it's such a foreign, counterintuitive mm. idea mm. that for writers like the Apostle Paul mm. to say, mm. before time began, God is setting up this mm. plan of redemption, mm. it's just, you know, astounding, mm. isn't it? It is. And if you think of this, Jesus is asked and replies... Before Abraham was, I am. And that's incredibly important because that's eternity in a nutshell. There's no time in eternity. So it's I am. He's ever present. Behold, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of of the world is now. The I am, literally, when a sinner repents, is crucified now. Mm. This is very interesting. It's as if the crucifixion. The crucifixion is taking place now. God exists outside of space and of time. But when he does manifest himself on earth, he manifests himself as the great I am. And, you know, I've been reading so much while I've been here, Fuzz is a visiting scholar, about the Lord saying, Oh, Father, glorify thy Son, that thy Son might glorify thee. It's a it's a wonderful discussion, a beautiful, harmonious mm-hmm. discussion between God who is eternal yeah. and then God who is manifest, the Logos in the flesh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. So what else about the James Webb images uh, you, do you find fascinating, do you find interesting? I think that its images of stellar nurseries are unbelievable. Mm. I produced actually a little uh, juxtaposition of a Van Gogh image with a James Webb Space Telescope image. And I just, you know, God said to me many years ago, Faz, behold, I will give you the treasures of darkness Mm -hmm. and the hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, am the God of Israel, the treasures of darkness. And I was one of the first people to really push. I was one of the first, not the first, but one of them, to really push for the fact that cosmic dust is here to stay and is not just a nuisance, it's ultra important. Mm -hmm. And now when I look at images of the by the James Webb Space Telescope of these stellar nurseries, I'm blown away because not only do I see the clouds of cosmic dust, but now in the infrared, I see the clouds of cosmic dust are penetrated. We're able to see through mm. and we can see the birth of stars writhing, seething, ultraviolet 
infrared radiations, carving mm. out pillars, um, sculpturing mm. like Rodin, like uh, Michelangelo mm. with a block of marble. We see the veritable hand of God mm. in these stellar nurseries. I can't tell you how excited I am by these exquisite yeah. images. Yeah. It's such a privilege to yeah. be living at this time for us. Yeah. yeah. So, so what, does, what does this tell you about God? To me, I mean, that's lovely. To me, and it sounds very simplistic, but to me, it's, it emphasizes over and over and over again two things. The heavens declare the glory of mm-hmm. God. But secondly, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Yeah. What is man yeah. that thou art mindful of him? And, of course, this is where you, the really a key expert, is man with his cells, with his biochemistry. Yeah. What is man that God not only works on the the big scale and the anthropic principles which, which we can discuss on the cosmological scales, but also anthropic principles on the very smallest of scales. Yeah. And so when I look at images from the James Webb, I'm blown away, but I'm like a little boy with new toys, you know, Fuzz. Yeah. I, just, I just look and I say, the heavens, Fuzz, don't only proclaim the knowledge about God, yeah. but the heavens declare the glory. The glory of yeah. God. It's just like Jesus with some of his disciples, tra- him being transfigured on the mount, and they behold not him only, yeah. but his glory. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I have a talk that I just recently put together yes. about God is an artist. That, oh, wonderful. You know, and, oh, wow. and so oftentimes I think when we as Christian apologists think about God and we think about the scientific case for God, we almost treat God as a divine engineer, not that there's mm-hmm. an, or anything mm-hmm. wrong with that, no. where everything is just the way that it's supposed to be, and it is, mm-hmm. you know, but it, it, oftentimes I think that is an impoverished view of God. When you think about God as an artist, lovely, right now, beautiful? now when mm. we look at the, the, the universe or we mm. look even at, at the, the structure of a protein, there's an elegance, there's a beauty that really, I think, reflects something profound about God's nature, you know, as a as a creator, yes, right? Absolutely. You know, you know, when I see the the Genesis one creation account, yes, right. You know that that uh, you know each day of after each day of creation, God says it is good. Isn't that lovely? And and in yes. Hebrew, that that word good can mean beauty or mm. things are exactly the way that he they are it. intended to be. Oh. So it's almost as if each after each day of creation, God anthropomorphically is standing back and, just, and just says, he admiring, really does. admiring his work. Mm. And, and then mm. he's created us as mm. creatures in his mm. image mm. that can likewise mm. step in and admire mm. his work mm. and and be an artist too. And be an artist too. Uh, and ourself. be an artist too. I love that. You know, as a scientist, we can be an artist too. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Mm. But maybe one of my favorite passages of scripture comes from Psalm 104. Yes. And this is a, a creation psalm, and it parallels Genesis 1. So yes. it's fun to sit down with Genesis 1 and Psalm 104 and, yes. and see that correspondence. But there's a, a, a point that cor- that I think corresponds to the fifth day of creation, where it talks about God creating the Leviathan, mm. uh, probably mm. a whale or a mm. dolphin, mm. Uh, to frolic among the ships. Mm. That is the whole mm. purpose mm-hmm. of God's 
in God's mind, mm. <laughs> for creating this creature mm. is to play, mm. right? That there's an it's lovely. Th- that, that there's a, it's a beauty for the, to the creation, mm. but there's a, a playfulness, mm. absolutely, right? To God, I the agree artist. with that wholeheartedly. Yeah, and so, you know, it, it, but that, and so it just, I don't know. It's fun to think about God as an artist to me. It's very, it's deeply meaningful. Right. And also God is a joyous artist. Yes, exactly. You know, it's not just like an artist who's not passionate about his creation. He's a joyful artist. Yeah. He exuberates with joy, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. Throughout the Gospels, when you look at this, yeah. there's the joyful, there's the joy, yeah. one of the fruits of the Spirit, joy. He goes out and I think with his palette of colors, <laughs> makes all these stellar maternity wars and the whole universe and yeah. the Big Bang and everything besides and looks back and it's good. But it's with joy. Yeah. He loves to create. He loves. I think that's that's impregnated in us, right, Imago Day. Yes. Well, you know, it's very interesting because one of the big conundrums in evolutionary biology is how do you explain the origin of what's called our aesthetic sense? That is, human beings, we, we have this capacity to appreciate beauty, uh, but instead of just simply looking at something and say, oh, that's beautiful, Mm. we immerse ourselves in beauty. Mm. We are compelled to spend countless hours contemplating beauty. Mm. And as you pointed out, and then in turn, we want to create things that are beautiful. And and when I make something that I think is beautiful, Mm. I want to show it to you and invite you to spend time contemplating what I have made, exactly. right? And, and, and there's nothing that imparts any kind of survivability to human beings no. to, to do this. Because no. the more time you spend no. contemplating that which is beautiful, the no, more time no, you no. spend, no. you know, obsessing about mm. creating mm. things that have no utility mm. other than the joy that it brings us mm. to create it mm. and then to share mm. that creation mm. with others that detracts from our survivability. Mm. But if you think about yes. human beings being made in God's image, yeah, absolutely, th- and, and we are, in a sense, co-creators. Absolutely, we are. We really are. I mean, when I go to Rome, when I go to Paris, and I look at Rodin's work and so on, it's magnificent. And God, yeah. he, Rodin loved to create. Michelangelo right. loved to create. And the point is this also, Fuzz, is it not is we always taught survival of the fittest. That sounds so hard. It sounds so mechanistic, doesn't yeah. it? Yes. But there's this joyfulness to God, this playfulness. Right. He's setting his laws, you know, creating the fine tunings of the Big Bang and right. just host besides in the anthropic principle, but doing so with joy. It's not just, you know, I've never looked at myself as just surviving. I remember I once had a professor. <laughs> a colleague at university, and I always asked him for 25 years, how are you doing, John? And he said, I'm surviving. And I thought, how tragic. The man is only surviving. And somehow that's kind of a a takeaway from the evolutionistic, uh, you know. Well, you know, well, let me tell you a story about about that, about this idea of surviving. You know, I, uh, I, I collect comic books. That's my confession. (laughs) So it's a totally frivolous activity, but it's just something I enjoy doing. Well, there's a, a comic book store that I frequent, and usually when I come out of the store, sitting on the, the bench by the store is a, a guy that I've gotten to know who's homeless. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten to know him and, and kind of become friends with him. And one time he was needing some money, and I always just give him mm. give him a little bit. Mm. And he said, I'm so grateful for this. I'm going to go and buy a notebook and a pencil 
because I love to write. Hmm. And I'm sitting here thinking, here's hmm. a guy living on the streets, hmm. right? Hmm. Not knowing where his next meal is hmm. coming from, hmm. not knowing where he's going to sleep that hmm. night. And when he gets a little money, what does he want to do? He wants to to spend that money to have the chance to create something. Unbelievable. It, so it's it's, it, it's not just it's not mm. what's driving him isn't mm. a need mm. to survive. Mm. It's the need to create. Mm. That's mm. the the beauty of the mm. image of God, mm. right? The the glory mm. of God to mm. me was manifested in that it's one such moment. It's a beautiful story, right? And it's it's part of who we are. Every time I'm uh, every time I'm researching some new phenomenon, there's a joy behind it. There's you know. Yeah. You feel, wow, I've yeah. written this book or I've written this article or we've yeah. made this discovery. And to me, that's, you know, isn't it, doesn't, isn't it true that entheos in God, enthusiasm, comes from the Lord himself? The yeah. Lord is not sitting there as some mechanistic engineer making images and wanting them uh, just to survive right. and only the fittest survive. You know, Fuzz, when I think back to my schooling at uh, high school, the way I was bullied and so on, and the, the, the survival of the fittest was the key. Right. Only the fittest yeah. apparently would survive. But my new book is called The Tribe Has Not Spoken. In other words, the tribe had spoken. In their view, they had delivered the final vote. There's no future for David Block because he's not the fittest as far as sports goes or as far as other things go. But the, praise God, because his image is impregnated within my soul, I could rise above that bullying, yeah. look at the stars, look at Saturn, look at Saturn and its moons, look at Jupiter, which is on my tie, and come out with joy yeah. and eventually come to know my creator face to face. Well, you know, something that you mentioned is, I think it's a, is something that most people don't appreciate, is that scientists... Even, and engineers are actually very creative people. Correct. They're very much as much creatives as artists who mm -hmm. would paint or who would write music or mm -hmm. write poetry. Mm -hmm. that, 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 that it's not left brain, right brain, but there's enormous amount of creativity. I love that. But what's interesting to me is that God has given us this pleasure of being able to discover mm. his artistic work. Mm. And so that as we mm. express the image of God mm. and become creative mm. and through that creativity, mm. understand mm. nature mm. and understand and mm. develop the ability through that creativity mm. to probe nature, mm. we're rewarded with even a, a greater glimpse mm. into the artistry mm. and the glory and Absolutely. the majesty of God. Absolutely. So, it's not like science robs mm -mm, the creation not at all. of, of, of not the, at all. the beauty, but mm. it actually augments mm. the beauty, mm. right? You know, mm. and, and, and it gives us, you know, surprising opportunities mm. to see beauty mm. where we wouldn't even imagine it. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm a biochemist, and there was mm. an incredible paper about the distribution of fatty acids mm -hmm. that are found in nature. Mm -hmm. that fatty acids have different chain links. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the distribution of fatty acid chain links corresponds to the uh, the Fibonacci, uh, oh, the Fibonacci series, series right? Mm. And so here's this. Yes, here's, it's when amazing. You look, when you look at biochemical uh, systems and you uh, see this uh, menagerie of fatty uh, acids that uh, don't make any sense, uh, uh, and then somebody comes uh -huh, along uh -huh, and applies this uh 
this, the golden rule, exactly. right? Exactly. You know, exactly. The, to, there's beauty, there's elegance, there's design, there's that's thought. Not, it, that, that suddenly yes. is, is exposed. Exactly. And following the Fabio Nazi series too on the very smallest right, scale. Right, right. And, and that golden triangle uh, is is uh, is considered to be this uh, this type of symmetry that, that is absolutely. perceived as human beings absolutely. as being incredibly beautiful. Absolutely. Absolutely. So so you see that 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 golden triangle mm. structure in, in the in the galaxies, galaxies, in the distribution of fatty acids it's of amazing. all things. It's right? amazing. Yeah. That's beautiful. But you use the word pleasure. And God has pleasure in creating, but so do we. Yeah. You know, as a young st student in cosmology, I've started studying general relativity. And my first paper was published in London. I think I was 20 years old. But anyway, there's the elegance. There's the pleasure. There's the pleasure us, of understanding Things like, which sound terribly complex, active and conformally active symmetries in metrically automorphic space-times, admitting linear colony, very complex things, Lie algebras and killing vectors and so on, but beautiful. The fact that space-time yeah. is curved, yeah. it's beautiful. It's mathematical, it's elegance, it's imagination. It's the human imagination coming out to its highest levels yeah. of Imago Dei. Yeah. And it gives me pleasure to do that. And I know Einstein had a tremendous amount of joy in formulating his field equation. Now, let me ask you this question, and hopefully it's not an unfair question. I'm just curious. Do you think mathematics is discovered or is it invented? I think maybe both, you know. I think that there's the discovery part, but then, but there's the discovery part. But in other words, I'd like to answer your question. It's beautiful. Math is mathematics the language of God? Well, it's not the only language God uses. Of yeah. course, God is love and much besides. And there's the aesthetic, the beauty part yeah. of God. But I think impregnated into the structure of the Big Bang, of course, is relativistic astrophysics and cosmology. Yeah. And so I think the language of God is to be considered on many different levels. Yeah. You've got God is love and so on and so on and so on. But one of the languages of God is the DNA, of course, yeah. right? Yeah. And another language of God is simply the equations of general relativity and yeah. uh, much besides mm -hmm. that. So yeah. you've got it. I think you've got this on all different levels. Right. I think God would speak in quote, unquote, many different yeah. languages. What are your thoughts with regard to that and say DNA, the language of oh, God? Yeah, well, you, what's remarkable to me is you know, you've got this incredibly elegant language, mm. but um, but the the more we study mathematically the structure of the the biochemical language, mm. the more and more it appears to be similar to the language that we would construct as human beings. So, in other words, if you analyzed human language mathematically, you see the same kinds of patterns in the language of biochemistry. Wonderful. To the point where you have biochemists developing what they call a biochemical grammar, where they can literally develop these grammatical rules mm. that apply to the language of biochemistry wow. and wow. then use that grammatical language to predict uh, the, des the design of new biomolecules. Bio wow. They can wow. use that grammar and go in the wow. lab mm -hmm. and actually create biomolecules mm -hmm. with that set of rules. Mm -hmm. That, mm -hmm. to me, is so provocative mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. language... It's it, language. It, it, it's, it's, there is a, a real language there mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. is identical to the mm -hmm. language that, mm -hmm. that we engage mm -hmm. in. 
you know. Uh, mm. And yet it's so different from the, my mathematical language. Yeah. So God is using, but doesn't it tie in beautifully with Scripture? Actually, now that I'm thinking of it, and God said. Yes. And God said. Yeah. In other words, he spoke. And in that speech yeah. is our languages at multifaceted levels. Yeah. From your world to my world to the world of generals and much more. He spoke. But yeah. there are many different languages in that one moment of speaking. Yeah. And it's yeah. actually beautiful. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in the universe and everything in the universe is God's spoken word to exactly. us. Exactly. Right? That's you know, correct. that's that's amazing. Well, you know, in terms of this idea of, of mathematics, and I, and I don't know where I, I come down on it either, but it's a lot of fun to think about it. But it's remarkable to me that you could have mathematicians create these mathematical systems. Mm. They they invent these mathematical mm, systems. It is. And then, to everybody's surprise, those systems suddenly have utility mm, mm, in explaining some kind of phenomenon. Mm. I think in the that's beautiful. So, I think that's so, beautiful. And I think this may very well mm, connect or find mm, explanation in the mm, idea that we bear God's image. Absolutely. Somehow, when we create, when mm-hmm, we invent, mm-hmm. we are unwittingly doing things that echo what the creator has already absolutely, done. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, and, and you mentioned the idea of, of, of the biochemical language. Mm. One of the things I find so fascinating as a biochemist is there seems to be this interplay between the technology we invent and the structure and the function of biochemical systems. Wow, wow. I'd love you to elaborate on well, that. Well, so, for example, uh, when we encounter a biochemical system and we try to understand how it works— Many times by viewing it through the lens of the technologies that we build, Mm -hmm. suddenly we get that insight that suggests this is how the system is functioning. Mm -hmm. But then Mm -hmm. we now have uh, technologists looking at the design of biochemical Mm -hmm. systems Mm -hmm. and then from that suggesting insights that lead to new technologies. So let's go back to DNA, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's a... It's an information system. Absolutely. It's a language. And, and, and the structure of DNA is so optimized mm. to, to store information. Absolutely. And, and, and this is one of the things I bring out in my book, Fit for a Purpose, mm-hmm. is I explain how every detail, minute detail of the DNA molecule is precisely the way it needs to be mm. for it to function as an information storage mm. system. Mm. It's so optimized that some people have said it's the theoretical maximum mm. in terms of storing information mm. per, per, per mass. Mm. And, mm. And, and so we now have technologists looking mm. at developing mm. the next generation of mm. data storage devices mm. built from DNA. Mm. And so mm. instead of compact disks mm. and magnetic tapes, we're now going to, in the next generation, have you know, DNA mm. storage devices mm. because the information in DNA mm. is, is digitized. Mm. That, to me, is, is, is fascinating. It is fascinating. But then um, the, the machinery that manipulates DNA, mm-hmm. like in DNA replication and transcription, literally is operating like a computer system. Mm-hmm. The, the, the cell's machinery... Uh, this is an insight of a, a computer scientist by the name of Leonard Adelman who looked at these biochemical systems and said, these are literally Turing machines Wow! where the digital information wow. is the input and the output mm. and the enzymes mm. are the mm. are the finite controls mm. that are transforming that beautiful. information. Isn't that beautiful? And so Adelman, with this insight, went off and invented a whole area of nanotechnology mm. called DNA computing mm. Where, mm. where scientists are building mm. 
computers out of DNA. Mm -hmm. And they're wet computers in these little test mm -hmm. tubes. And because you can generate massive parallel operations, mm -hmm. you, you actually have the capacity to solve problems that current state-of-the-art supercomputer mm, exactly. systems can't solve. Exactly. And that's another part of Imago Dei, as you say. We model things, yeah. in this case biochemistry, in my case mathematically, but then we use them. Yeah. They, become, they become real. They, yes. That's what you're saying. They become real. Whether we look at it, computers built that way right. or in my field, they become real. They become applicable, yeah. not only to the microcosm, but also to the macrocosm. And that's astonishing. Yeah. But if you think about this, if, if, if we and the rest of biology is just the outworking of some kind of materialistic, mm. mechanistic, unguided, Purpose, yes. purposeless force. Mm -hmm. Why would there be this, this interplay between the, the mathematics we create in, in the, the operation of the universe, mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. the technology we Absolutely. invent, and Absolutely. The, the technology inside Absolutely. the cell? We are created in his image. Right, exactly. That mm -hmm. seems like the, the Christian worldview mm. that, that's talks about a creator putting everything mm. in place and mm. human beings as his image bearers mm. that can understand the creation mm. or at least get a glimpse of an understanding. A, a glimpse of it. Yeah, you know, the, mm. the, the Christian worldview has power to make sense of, of, of what science Absolutely. and technology is all about. I think what you're saying first, it's not only uh, a creator who creates the universe and is distant and then goes to bed for 14 billion years. <laughs> he doesn't do that. He's involved with his creation as an artist, as one who loves beauty, as, lo as one who loves to inspire others to dream. Uh, and that's one of my mottos actually in life is to tell audiences around the world, always look up why, because there's always yeah. that sense of wonder. There's always that sense of we'll develop a mathematical model today and tomorrow James Webb will reveal that it is correct. That's powerful. The predictive nature yeah. of the Baconian method yeah. is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, it speaks of a, a God who's not only an artist, but a God who is a God of order oh, absolutely. and design. Because oh, absolutely. if it wasn't for the, the, the orderliness of the universe, if it, if it wasn't for the fact that the laws of nature are constant, mm. that, that, absolutely. that science would be impossible. Absolutely. Science would be impossible. Right. Yes. And, and, and we couldn't even know right and wrong. Mm. Morality. This is a point it's that true. I've heard philosophers make, mm -hmm. that morality mm. is only possible mm. in a predictable, mm. orderly well, universe. It is. It is. Yeah, so you know, it's a it's amazing, you know, how science just opens up mm. this wonder and these mm. questions mm. that when you hold to a Christian mm. worldview mm. are are just mm. so inspiring and so profound. So profound. Mm. You know, if you think of the anthropic cosmological principle, for example, and you think of the fine tunings of our universe, not only the rate of expansion of the universe fine-tuned to 1 in 10 to the 55, or 1 followed by 55 zeros. But if you look at the weak nuclear force, the strong nuclear force, the electromagnetic force field, the gravitational force field, and many other force fields besides, you see order. And the point is, without that order, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation today. That's the point, too, is we can only be creative artists mm -hmm. if the universe is exactly as it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think we're running out of time, and you know what? I'll save my uh, mm. my discussion of endogenous retroviruses for <laughs> for a future episode. 
uh, because this conversation has been a lot more fun than talking about infectious agents. Uh, it's been awesome. Because, uh, yeah, because you are a very infectious person. <laughs> and I mean that in, in a good way, of course. Thank you, Fez. You know, but thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on Star Cells and God and, and really just giving us uh, a glimpse into... Uh, the beauty of the cosmos and a glimpse into your your heart and the yeah. passion that you have yeah. for science, but also the passion you have for for your, for God Himself. Yes. And and it's mind blo- blowing to think, David, that you and I can have an intimate relationship Correct. with this Correct. Creator who brought everything Correct. into existence. Absolutely, that is what's beyond imagination. To and me. it gives us pleasure. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well. Uh, thanks so much for watching this episode of Star Cells and God. I hope that you are uh, inspired by the conversation I had with Dr. David Block. Uh, I would invite you uh, to make sure you go to our website and check out reasons.org and all the resources we have that allow you to explore the relationship between science and the Christian faith. Also, follow us on social media. Go to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe One. Subscribe hit the notification button, and then uh, last but not least, keep in mind that the more we discover about science, the more we discover reasons to believe. Until next time, God bless you.